nothing among you except what? Remember? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We are a cruciform people. Right? We, we are a cruciform people, which means we are people that are deeply impacted by and shaped by the work of God at the cross. And that's what this class is going to be about, is what happened at the cross. How does it impact us? How does it shape us? Come on, man. There's plenty of seats. Come on in. How does it shape us? What happened at the cross? What did those first eyewitnesses see when they were standing at the foot of the cross? Um, that's what we're going to talk about. So I want to start by uh, telling a little story of something that happened uh, back at our church. There was something, I don't exactly remember what was going on, but there was something that happened at our church, and there were a lot of different stories about that one thing that was going on. And uh, we were going to meet to talk about all these variety of stories about this one thing that took place, and our executive minister who worked for State Farm for a really long time, he kind of stopped everybody and he said, okay, have you ever, have you ever read multiple eyewitness accounts of one wreck? Whenever you read multiple eyewitness accounts of a car wreck, it's almost like you're reading about multiple car wrecks. Because everyone saw the wreck at a different time, from a different angle. They entered into the wreck at a different time. Um, they started paying attention at a different time. And so you have all these people talking about one thing, right? And they're all talking about one wreck that happened. But when you read their eyewitness accounts of that wreck, it's like you're reading about multiple carpets. And I think that's a great way to talk about how the New Testament talks about the cross and how... God worked at the cross and what that work was. And so um, I call this class the kaleidoscopic cross. The kaleidoscopic really is a word, I promise. Um, I, I looked it up. It is a word. It means multicolored or multifaceted. You remember the kaleidoscope? Remember little, you know, you look through them and you got the little crystals and depending on how the light's hitting those crystals, you'll see a shape. And then if you turn it a little bit, you get a different shape. You turn it again, you get a different shape. Um, I think the New Testament in a lot of ways works when you're dealing with different aspects about the work of God, especially when you're dealing with different aspects about how um, God works at the cross, different texts reveal different truths about God's work. Um, and I think the way that Scripture does that is through the use of imagery. Uh, are there any literature people in here? My wife's a literature person. Um, imagery, right? Just visually descriptive or figurative language that's intended to help us produce some kind of mental image in our head. Um, and so you'll find imagery in writings and that, that imagery is there so that we can create some kind of picture in our heads. Um, the purpose of imagery in scripture is, I think, to speak different truths about the work of God that uh, might be too difficult to understand in other ways. And so scripture imagery to help us try to visualize that work, try to help us picture what that work of God might be. And, and I think, um, you know, different authors in Scripture, they make use of imagery. Right? They, they use different kind of imagery to help us better understand a truth about God that we probably would not be able to understand any other way without them uh, creating these images for us in Scripture to kind of picture in our minds. And, and the truth is, and I think sometimes we want to deny this truth because maybe we think it makes the Bible sound contradictory, but I don't think it is. The truth is, is that uh, when you see these different images, sometimes it's like reading those eyewitness accounts of wrecks. Um, you're getting, kind of getting different images that tell different parts of the story. And sometimes they might sound like they're at odds with one another, kind of like when you're reading these eyewitness accounts of and so here, here's a great example I'd use. Uh, baptism. Baptism is a perfect example of Scripture's use of imagery and how all these different images might say different things that sound like they're in, uh, contradictory to one another, but really they're just all telling different uh, truths about a particular work of God. And so uh, we're not going to read all these texts, but I have them up there so for you to look at. And so if you think about the different ways the New Testament talks about baptism, you've got John 3. You know, John 3 is talking about baptism, the whole uh, being born again by the Spirit of the Water. Well, then, what imagery there, what image for baptism is new birth, right? So there's one picture of what baptism is doing, what's happening at baptism, new birth. Acts 22, 16, you've got
got a different image. It's about not new birth, but now it's about cleansing. It's about washing someone. They're dirty and they need to be cleansed of something. Romans 6. You get to Romans 6 and it's not about new birth and it's not about washing anyone or cleaning them, but rather it's about being participants in uh, the drama of Jesus. It's about being participants in that death, right? We go down, we're buried, and then we're resurrected. And so Romans 6 pictures baptism very much as a participation in a drama. We're reenacting something. We are participating in it. Galatians 3. You go to Galatians 3, and it talks about baptism, and it's not new birth, and it's not washing or cleansing, and it's not participation in anything, but rather it's we're putting on new clothing. And that new clothing is Christ, right? We're taking off old clothing, the old self, and putting on new clothing. Colossians 2, um, it's a completely different imagery. It's circumcision. That's not new birth, and that's not reenactment, and that's not putting on clothing. Right? That's kind of cutting something off, right? And so um, you've got that circumcision imagery. And then you get 1 Peter 3 and 1, and it's not about any of those other things. It's about a pledge. It talks about being a pledge of a clear conscience. We're, we're, we're pledging that clear conscience to God. All these different images, and I didn't even include our Church of Christ baptism text, which is what?
atonement. Listen to what the Hebrew writer says about that day of atonement and what Jesus did. This is Hebrews 10, um, starting verse 1. I don't know how far I'll read, but follow along. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, it can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Who wants that? Right? Who wants an annual reminder of how sinful you are? I think we have a hard enough time forgetting. We don't need somebody to constantly put it in our face. But the Hebrew writer says this, this atonement thing that we read about in 16, that was just a reminder. Every year of how sinful they were. That it didn't actually make them perfect. It didn't actually do any of those things. It was just a reminder because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. He goes on to say, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when that priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Talking about Jesus there. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit testifies about this. Sins and lawless acts, I'll remember more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So Hebrews 10 comes along and says, Jesus was the better sacrifice than all those annual sacrifices they made. Um, and so uh, you have the substitution language. I don't want to stay too long on the substitution stuff because it's the one we know so well. What I do want to do is I want to, before I move on to other images, I want to offer a critique of the substitution. Not to criticize the substitution language, but just to show why we need to broaden our vocabulary, why we need to broaden our, our, our imagery of the cross and how the cross works. So, um, a number of years back, a uh, family came to me and said that their little girl wanted to be baptized. Uh, and she was 10, maybe at the time. Um, I think I was the second or third person to hold her after she was born. I was at the hospital um, after she was born, and I hold her, um, little Reese, and uh, her parents were going to be baptized and wanted me to talk to her about it. Well, remember, I, I held Reese as a baby. Reese has known nothing else in her life but Jesus and church. She was patting the Bible before she knew it was the Bible. She was saying Jesus loves me before she knew what she was even saying. She was saying prayers before she even knew what she was saying or who she was saying it to. Um, she's gone to every VBS. She's gone to every Sunday school. I mean, all she'd ever known her entire life was church and Jesus. There's never been a time in her life where she did not know who Jesus was. So I'm meeting with her, and I said, Reese, why do you want to be baptized? And if you knew Reese, you would know this is exactly how she said it. She said still have this tent revival 
still even talk about our children that way, that when they come to baptize and talk about all their many sins being washed away, and parents become uncomfortable with that, because I'm not sure that's good news for our children. Um, another critique, uh, Lisa Sharon Harper, anybody familiar with that name? No, my wife is. Uh, she, she wrote a book called The Very Good Gospel, I think is what it's called. Um, I heard her do, uh, my wife actually introduced me to this, she was on a podcast, and um, she was talking about how she'd been doing some uh, work in her family tree, doing some genealogy work, and she discovered Leah Ballard. Leah Ballard uh, was her great, 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 great grandmother, I think that's right, four greats, great, 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 great grandmother. She lived in the 1700s. She was a slave. And what she discovered about Leah Ballard, her great, 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 great grandmother, was that as a slave, her job was to be a breeder. Now, a lot of people don't even know that there were such things as breeders, as slaves. But if you were a breeder, that meant that you lived your entire life um, being raped under the oversight of your owner so that you could produce more slaves. Um, so that you could either produce more slaves for that slave owner so that he has more hands to help as they get older, or so that you can produce slaves that he can put on the market and sell and pocket cash. But Leah Ballard's entire existence as a slave was to be a breeder. Her life consisted of being raped so that she could be impregnated and give birth to others that would become slaves, um, either for her owner or for another owner. And this is your Harper started, she was digging into that story and found that story about her great, 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 great grandmother. She'd been pondering that story in her head and she's riding down the road listening to a Christian radio station or something and they start talking about um, the good news of the cross and how Jesus had uh, taken our place and become our substitute and that uh, you know sinners need to realize that they're eternally separate from God. And Lisa started thinking about her grandmother, Leah Ballard, and she started thinking If I was door knocking, I know we don't do that anymore. But if I was door knocking, and I went to her door, she answered the door, and I knew her story, could, could I say to her, Leah, I know that your life is pretty bad, but I've got some good news for you. you, you you've been eternally separated from God because of your sin, because of your depravity, because of your sinful lifestyle. And that's eternally separated you from God. But here's the good news Jesus. Christ became your whipping boy and came in your place and he died taking on all of your sin that you were supposed to get God's wrath for and Jesus took that wrath on your behalf. 
serve, but to serve and to give his life as a what? As a ransom for many. As a ransom. So, what is a ransom? What's a ransom? It's a price you pay to buy someone's freedom. Um, it's a price that you pay to buy someone back. Mel Gibson gave us a great movie in 1996 to help us understand Ransom. It was called Ransom. And he was this wealthy airline owner, and his son was kidnapped, and he received a ransom note. And it said, pay us $2 million or uh, you'll never see your son again, right? Ransom is a price that you pay to buy someone back, to buy their freedom, that someone more powerful has kidnapped them or enslaved them. And they need to be bought back. The Greek words behind redeem and redemption are words that literally mean to buy back, to liberate, to free, to pay a price to free someone. Ransom was really huge um, for uh, theologians of the earliest centuries when they were talking about the death of Jesus. They talked a lot about ransom. Um, there's a book called God's a Peacemaker by Graham Cole. And uh, he says this about the whole ransom theory. He says, in general terms, many theologians of the first millennium, Irenaeus, Oregon, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory the Great, said they believe that Satan, through his deception of Eve and Adam in the garden, had secured some kind of right over their destinies and with them all of humanity. After all, Scripture does describe Satan as the prince of this world. And Christ's death provided a ransom to set the captives free. Um, St. Augustine of Hippo put it this way. The Redeemer came and the deceiver was overcome. What did our Redeemer do to our captor? By shedding the blood of one who was not his debtor, he was forced to release his debtors. This is very different than substitution language. Right? Buy back. Liberate. Ransom, release, redeem. Um, there's very little in this language about the depravity of our sinfulness. Um, there's very little in here about our deserved punishment that Jesus' death substituted for. Ransom says that we're actually under bondage. Ransom says that we've been enslaved, that a greater power has enslaved us. And that there is a specific price, a ransom that needs to be paid in order to release us from that bondage, in order to release us from that slavery, that captivity. In other words, Jesus' death was not a substitute, but was rather the price needed to be paid in order to free us. So, the question that we have to ask, being um, you know, Bible people, is, okay, so is this language in the Bible? Can we find this more than just in the Matthew 20 text? Are there other places um, in the Bible? And the truth is, yeah, once you start looking for it, it starts jumping off the pages. So, First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Gave himself as a ransom for all men. Um, Hebrews 9. So Hebrews already talked about the substituting language, right? But it also uses this ransom language. Hebrews 9 and verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free. Uh, over in Revelation.
jumps off every page. And our bondage, it comes in all different forms. It comes in all different shapes and all different sizes. And I think the good news of the cross, in order for it to be good news, it has to be able to uh, spread across the vast spectrum of our bondages, the different types of bondage that we all experience. Um, and a truth that is spoken to us in Scripture is that Jesus died on the cross, not just to serve as a substitute, but Jesus died on the cross to serve as a ransom for many, that his death paid a price to free us from our bondage, to give us hope for a better life, that God bought our freedom with Jesus at the cross. So you've got substitution language, and then you've got ransom language. What else do we have? You've got victory language. So in 1930, there was a Swedish theologian named Gustav Allen. Uh, he wrote a little book on atonement called Christus Victor. And you can look at Christus Victor and probably guess what that comes out of. The, the victorious Christ is what that means, the victorious Christ. And his whole book was about atonement and what happened at the cross. And he called his theory the classical. He said, this is the classical theory. I'm not proposing a new theory, but rather I'm calling the church back to the orthodox view of atonement that the theologians and preachers and teachers had for 12 centuries. He says, for the first 12 centuries of Christianity, this is the way theologians talked about the work of God at the cross and what happened at the cross. So he says, I'm not proposing a new view of atonement. I'm calling this back to the orthodox or the classical view Atonement. So here's the defining passage in his book um, where he talks about this. He says, its central theme is the idea of atonement as a divine conflict and victory. Christ, Christus Victor, the victorious Christ, fights against and triumphs over the evil powers of the world, the tyrants under which mankind is in bondage and suffering, and in him reconciles the world to himself. So for all of what he said was that at the cross, what we see is we see victory. That Christ died in order to defeat the powers of evil. To defeat the power of the devil. To defeat the power of sin and death. And what he says is that, uh, I mentioned this earlier, he says that this is the language that was used predominantly in Christianity for the first 12 centuries. Now, I don't know if that's true. I haven't done the research. It's going off what he said. But he said that for the first 12 centuries... Christianity, more so than ransom, more so than substitution, more so than some of the others we're going to look at in a moment. Victory was the language that was used when they talked about the cross. That at the cross, what happened was that devil and all of his hosts of evil are defeated, that sin is conquered. Now, ransom and victory language are closely tied together. As a matter of fact, when you read the stuff that talk about victory, they use a lot of ransom language. But what happens is that a lot of theologians and scholars like the victory language more than the ransom language because they said there's a flaw in the ransom language. There's a weakness to the ransom imagery of the cross. Can you think of what that ransom, what the weakness would be for the ransom imagery? We don't know who, uh, who we're paying the ransom for. Okay, don't know who we're paying the ransom for. That's one of them. There was a bigger one they said, though, and that is, why would God owe Satan anything? Why does God have to pay Satan anything? Why, what does God owe Satan? And that's what Ransom said, right? We're, we're paying that Ransom. And so why would God have to do that? Um, Leon Morris, uh, who is no longer with us, he's a New Testament scholar, um, actually was not a fan of Christmas Victor. He was not a fan of the Victor language, but I think
still, we still fight with Satan, right? We're still in this battle, and it's kind of like uh, my wife grew up in Northeast Alabama, and her town is uh, pretty well known in that area for uh, Civil War reenactments. Um, and uh, I was listening to Dan Patrick. This has been many years ago when Dan Patrick was still on ESPN. He's not on ESPN anymore, so I don't know how long ago this was. But he was talking about how the South do, do all these Civil War reenactments, and he was like, who reenacts and celebrates a war they lost? Right? Who does that? And one of the guys on the radio station with us said, maybe, maybe they're hoping that every time they reenact, maybe the outcome will be different next time. And I think that's a great way to think about what we experience in life. Like at, at the cross, Satan was defeated. Resurrection, Satan was defeated. Death was defeated. Sin was defeated. But yet, what we experience every day is Satan and all of his minions reenacting the war, hoping that every day the outcome will be different. But we know that the outcome won't be different. We know that he's going to come back and his fullness and all those things will go away. And so uh, that, that's this idea of victory language. So is this in Scripture, right? We're going to go back to the Scripture and say, okay, that's good and all that we have all these theories, but is, is this in the Bible? Well, there's a number of places that we can look at um, that use this victory language. First John. 3 and verse 8 is probably the big one that a lot of people use. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And that's the victory language. The whole reason God, Jesus, came was to destroy uh, his work. Hebrews 2, 14 says, since children have flesh and blood, and two share in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. Right? He might destroy the one who holds the power of death. Uh, Luke 10 and 18, we'll read it, where the disciples come back from their mission trip that they went on, and they're talking about all the great things that happened, and how the demons listened to them, and all this stuff. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from the sky like light. Um, Colossians 2 uh, is a great text about this great victory. Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled all that. And then it says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He, he had victory over them at the cross. He triumphed over them at the cross. So it's victory language. Let's start moving here. Next, the cross is an example. This may be a different one for some of you. One of the ways that the cross saves us, some say, is by providing for humanity a picture of what it truly means to look human. Providing for us an example of what it means to truly live as uh, a being created in the image of God. And that example that is provided for us on the cross is uh, love expressed through self-denial sacrifice. That what God was trying to do through the cross was that he was trying to bring about a positive moral change in individuals and trying to bring about um, transformation in communities so that people will become more loving and more sacrificial. And that Jesus gave us the example of what that looks like. Peter Avalar is a, an 11th century theologian who said, our hearts should be set on fire by such a gift of divine grace, and true love should not hold us back from suffering anything for its sake. Christ lived, listen to this, Christ lived and died for no other purpose than that he might teach us how to live by his words and example and point out by his passion and his death to what limits our love should go. So he'd be one of those who would gravitate to one 
talks about
when Jesus is lifted up off the ground, it's not talking about the ascension, it's talking about being lifted up on a cross. Now how do I know that? Because the very next line, after he says, and when I am lifted up in the earth will draw to myself, the very next line says, and he said this to indicate what kind of death he was going to suffer. When I am lifted up off the ground, I will draw all people to myself. Lifted up on the cross, he says. And that word draw can have a couple different meanings. It can be physically dragged, like fishermen physically dragging a fish up onto the shore, or disciples being physically dragged and them off. But then there's another meaning to this word draw, which is kind of an inward attraction. It's like the moth being drawn to the light. It's a piece of metal being drawn um, to the magnet. And this second meaning, which I think is pretty clear, that's what he means when he says, when I'm lifted up off the ground, I will draw them into me. I will, I will draw them in. That, that when we see the cross for what it truly is, when we see the cross for being the ultimate revelation of who God is, when we see the cross for being the ultimate revelation of God as love, then that should, should attract us. It should draw us like a moth drawn to a light. And then, so, very creatively, scholars call this the magnet theory. Right? Being drawn like a magnet. That at the cross, God was fully revealing himself as love poured out for us. And that that should draw us like a magnet. Um, that at the cross, God did not fight violence with more violence, but rather he fought violence with love. And that that love has a drawing power to it. So Richard Rohr says... Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity because it did not be changing. All these passages about humanity that are separated from the love of God, right? He says, God's mind never needed to be changed about humanity. That's substitution language, right? God's wrath needed to be poured out on us, but something needed to happen to change that, to change his mind about us. Well, Richard Rohr says, Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity, but rather Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God, that at the cross everything was revealed as God's suffering love. Um, and so that's this idea that the cross was meant to change our minds about who God is, to draw us to Him. So we've got substitution language, we've got ransom language, we've got victory language, we've, we've got uh, example language, we have magnet language. There are other theories that are out there, um, other theories and images that have been proposed, but these, I think, are the most prevalent ones that have been proposed throughout history, and I think they're the easiest ones to find in Scripture. Uh, the other one you have to do a little bit more digging to find. Um, I'm not suggesting that any one of these is more important than the other. Uh, or any one is more correct than the other. I think they're all valuable, and I think if we
talked to you about how the cross saves us from our selfishness by teaching us how to live sacrificially for others. And like your little sister, how can you live sacrificially for her? The cross would be an example of that for you. And that's good news because you have an example to follow. And so we can think about all these different people in our lives that we come across that have all these different things going on in their lives. And if we have just a very limited view of how the cross works, then we have a very incomplete way of being able to share the good news with them. But if we can take advantage of this kaleidoscopic way that the scriptures talk about the cross, then maybe it'll help us um, have some good news uh, for some people. Now, um, I'm going to end with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Are you any C.S. Lewis fans? I'm not really a C.S. Lewis fan. I'm not against him. I'm just, I'm just not a fan. Um, I've known some people that like, every, you know, every year some people decide I'm going to read through the entire Bible this year. I've known people that are like, every year I'm going to read every C.S. Lewis work over again. And then when the year starts over, they do it all over again. I, that's not me. The only C.S. Lewis books I own are because a guy that I knew that was like that bought them for me as a kid. I don't know why I told you all that about C.S. Lewis. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about the opponent. I like this. And this is what I'm going to leave you with. The central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. A good many different theories have been held as to how it works. But what all Christians are agreed on is that it does, in fact, work. I will tell you what I think it's like. Theories about Christ's death, they are not Christianity themselves. They are mere explanations about how it works. Christians would not all agree as to how important each of these different theories are. But I think they will all agree that the thing itself is infinitely more important than any explanation that we have produced as to how it works. I think they would probably admit that no explanation will ever be quite adequate to reality. I'm only a layman, though, and at this point, you're getting into deep water. I can only tell you for what it's worth how I personally look at the matter. On my view, the theories are not themselves the things that you are asked to believe and accept. We believe that the death of Christ is just that point in history at which something absolutely unimaginable from outside shows through into our own world. 